Hey friends! I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. The debut novel from today's guest was published at the beginning of 2023, but it resonated so strongly with readers that it ended up on more than a few best of the year lists. As such, I'm certain there are folks who are checking out this podcast for the first time. So to you new folks, let me be the first to say welcome! This is the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. There are no ads on this podcast, and there is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show, and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily, and get yourself or the reader in your life some excellent fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my 11 self-published books. All of my novels are currently available worldwide in both ebook and paperback formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can find all of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, which is spelled M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my stories, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. Listeners, this is episode 316 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. Our guest today is the award-winning playwright and novelist Paz Pardo. Last year, Simon & Schuster published Paz's first novel, The Shamshine Blind, a detective story that takes place in an alternate 2009, wherein a law enforcement agent uncovers a conspiracy to take down what's left of American democracy. In Paz's work of speculative fiction, the United States has been a second-rate power since Argentina's victory in the Falklands War, thanks to Argentina's development of psychopigments, which are color-coded chemicals that can produce almost any human emotion upon contact. And in this fictional 2009, these psychopigments, which can be weaponized, are embraced in America as both pharmaceutical cure-alls and recreational drugs. I first discovered The Sham Shine Blind from a list of comedian Anthony Jeselnik's best books of the year, in which he put Paz's novel third. Soon after, I ran into Paz on the social media app Blue Sky. After she commented on a photo I posted of a hot dog in a gumball machine. I know it sounds weird, but it's absolutely true. I immediately invited Paz on the show to talk with us about her debut novel, and here we are. So, without any further ado, let's speak now with Paz Pardo. Hello, Paz, are you there? Hello, I am here, yes, and I'm excited. Oh, this is so great. Thank you again so much for accepting our invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, right on. Pause, you're, you are Argentine-American. Are, are you presently in Argentina? I am, I am. Right now I'm out in the mountains, um, in the Andes. Very cool. I think you're probably our, our first guest from Argentina. That's so exciting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pause. When I described The Shamshine Blind just a moment ago, I used the term speculative fiction. 
I've read reviews where writers have referred to your novel as science fiction. Do you have a preference? Uh, I mean, I do feel like speculative is more accurate in the sense that, like, I mean, I grew up, my dad is, like, a hard sci-fi reader. Um, and, like, I definitely never go into, like, um, detail in the novel about, like, this is how, you know, these weaponized emotions were developed scientifically in a, like, way that sounds plausible. Um, so, like, in that sense, I definitely feel like it fits more under speculative than under sci-fi. But also I feel like hard sci-fi is actually a much smaller subset of science fiction than certain science fiction fans perhaps think. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I can go either way. But I do definitely feel like I grew up reading sci-fi and loving genre, sci-fi and fantasy. And I feel like it definitely um, is a book that has a sort of a, a vast world that's built within it. And that, I think, really does appeal to genre readers often in a way that it doesn't appeal to people who are, tend to read more literary fiction. Great answer. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Shamshine Blind takes place in and around San Francisco in an alternate 2009. I, I always associate 2009 with Americans jumping from flip phones to smartphones. Why did you choose 2009 for the year this story takes place? Well, so it actually comes out of, there were two things that I knew very early on. I knew that I wanted uh, Argentina to be the superpower, and I wanted Argentina to have become the world's only superpower during the Falklands War, the Malvinas War, which was an actual war that took place in 1982. Um, obviously, in the real world, Argentina did not win that war. <laughs> um, but so that was sort of my point of divergence. And I knew that the main character's father had died during the war, that she'd been, um, ju you know, just at that cusp between high school and, like, early high school um, when that had happened. And so I, I knew that... Um, that she was born in the 70s. So oh. given those two things, and that then I wanted her to be 40 because that was the cutoff for um, the type of work that she does. I wanted her to be coming up right on 40. So I knew the book had to be in 2009. Oh, right on. Which is a lot of... No, I hadn't <laughs> even considered those things. Of course, yeah, that makes so much sense. In the 2009 of The Shamshine Blind, Americans are still using payphones, they're still using typewriters, and they use the metric system. Why the metric system? <laughs> well, so Argentina uses the metric system, ah. and that was one of the things that, like, I was thinking about, like, how would the states be different if it were not, you know, the world leader? And I think that one of the things that might happen is that we, the people in the states, might decide that it was time to finally switch to the metric system. I think that's that's um, a that's a definite. You know, that's a great. Great point, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I went to elementary school in the 80s, and I remember mm -hmm. teachers telling us in the 80s, you know, every other every other country on the world uses the metric system, so you're going to learn it, because at some point, America will change over, and it never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like for a while there, it did feel like it was going to happen, and like now, I don't I don't believe that it will. No, no. I mean, barring something cataclysmic um <laughs> changing i've heard uh, creative people comment that so many of their earlier stories couldn't be told in the present because many of the obstacles their characters were dealing with then 
could now be easily solved with a smartphone. Was this at all a consideration when writing this book? No, it was more that um, I just didn't think that cell phone technology, I didn't think that technology would have progressed in the same way mm -hmm. uh, that it did uh, in a world where, like, one of the things that I was thinking about is like, okay, so if, if the world order gets upended by uh, technology that revolves around emotions, where is the funding going to go? And also, like, thinking about, um, like, the United States was behind developing a lot of the technology that went on to become, you know, the, the sort of desktop computer, the laptop that then eventually became cell phones. And if the center of technology was moving to another country, and a country that had just won a war using emotions, basically, like, they were going to be putting money into different avenues of research. And the states, which is... Has sort of has fallen on hard economic times, um, doesn't have money to continue that sort of push sure. um, that led to what what we now have. Um, it was very nice and handy to not have them, <laughs> I have to say. Sure. It was an unexpected plus, um, but no, it did come out of sort of my question of like, where would technology go? Excellent. If it didn't go the way that it has in the real world. Right on. As several times in the Shamshine Blind, the main character, Agent K. Kurtida, mentions her childhood obsession with comic books. Were comic books an obsession for you as a younger person? You know, weirdly, they weren't. Um, and I say weirdly because I feel like I... Like, a lot of the people whose books I adore now are people who grew up reading comic books. I feel like there is a... There, there's been a long-lasting sort of back and forth between science fiction and genre fiction and the comic book market. But I was, like, I'm not a very visual person. I'm a much more word-oriented person, which is maybe why I'm on Blue Sky more than I am on Instagram, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but so so I, I was never as, like, I was never connected to comic books the way that I connected to, like, you know, I was I would be in the library reading like Tamora Pierce or or Jane Yolen or whatever Ursula Le Guin. Um, when friends of mine who later on went on to be reading the same sci-fi books as I was reading were reading the were reading comic books, um, and I just didn't have like a grown-up around to orient me. Sure. Uh, in the comic book world, and then later on, I I did get into graphic novels, and I, I do really love graphic novels. Um, but it, it wasn't actually as, as, as much of a thing for me as I feel like for many of the people who, whose work I adore and engage with on a regular basis now as an adult. So it's, it's almost like something I feel like I missed out on in, in my childhood. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned a, a few of the authors that you really loved as a younger person. I, I don't seek out a lot of speculative fiction, but I am a fan of Philip K. Dick. And there were enough oh, yeah. parallels in the description of, of the Shamshine Blind and reading about the book and Philip K. Dick books that, that featured um, reality-altering chemicals and drugs that, that attracted me to your novel. Is, is Philip K. Dick at all an influence for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like Philip K. Dick is one of those authors where, like, like there are certain authors where they're so foundational <laughs> like they've changed the shape of literature so much that it's impossible to not have them as an influence. And for me, like, I think that, that Philip K. Dick definitely 
is there. Like it's not, it's not just Philip K. Dick who influenced me, but I feel like a lot of the work that then later on, I mean, like, you know, William Gibson is a huge influence as well. And I feel like he, you know, he comes out of that same sort of, um, like there's a, there's a literary search, there's a language search as well as a, as well as a genre um, search in their, in their work. And I feel like that's something that I really identify with. Very, very cool. I, I read at least one comparison of Agent K. Curtida and, and forgive me, am I saying, am I saying your character? Yes. I am saying yes, it correctly. That's okay. I'd read at least one comparison of Agent K. Curtida to Sam Spade from the Dashiell mm-hmm. Hammett novel, The Maltese Falcon. Are, are you a fan at all of, of hard-boiled American crime fiction from like the thirties, forties and fifties? Is that, is that something? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I joke there was, when I was in seventh grade, my class did a play called Lucky Dollar Private Eye. Um, and it, I memorized the entire script because that was the kind of little nerd that I was. Um, like I could just recite the, and all of the, you know, the hard boiled back and forth and the sort of 1930s cadence. Um, and, and that was sort of a, a, it, like it's a satire, it's a parody of those works, but it, it's a parody that's done with love. And that was sort of my, like my gateway drug into them. Um, so then when I finally got around, got old enough to be reading, you know, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, and there's something about the, the, the way that the language is, it's, it's, it's over the top in a sort of ironic fashion that really appealed to me. Like, um, there is a, there are a whole like, uh, series of radio plays that Hammett did with the Sam Spade character. And in one of them, like he describes a car, a little longer than a hearse pulled up outside of the house. And you're just like, you know, like you, 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 you have to laugh because it's just so it's absurd. And at the same time, it gives you like such a strong sense of like who this character is. Like if you're walking down the street and you're like, that car's shorter than a hearse, that car's longer than a hearse. Like this is who you're listening to. Um, and, and that always really appealed to me. Very, very cool. The, the Shamshine Blind is written in the first person from Agent Curtida's perspective. She seems to regard her colleague Birdie as a bit of an eccentric, and at one point, Agent Curtida mentions Birdie's fondness for seeking out unusual mushrooms. And I had, I had an aha moment when reading your bio on Goodreads where you said you enjoy looking for weird mushrooms in the woods. Do you feel, do you feel like looking for mushrooms is an unusual hobby? Well, I don't think it is now. Um, I mean, <laughs> like, I feel like in the last, like, five years, it's, or, like, I don't know, like, maybe partially with the pandemic. I don't know, but, like, it's become, like, a thing that people do. Yes. But, like, yeah, but if, if you think about, like, you know, if, if we didn't have, like, the New York Times, like, some lifestyle feature being, like, the morel hunters are out in force in California <laughs> after the wildfire season, you know, like, we wouldn't, <laughs> that would still be less, um, less, uh, less part of the general discourse around weekend activities, I think. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, I think you're absolutely right that in the last uh, several years, I think especially, and I didn't even consider the pandemic, but I'm sure you're correct that it's become a more popular hobby. Uh, music is an important part of the Shamshine Blind, and, and most of the bands and artists featured are presumed to be fictional acts who attained fame after Argentina became a first-rate world power. 
but there are pre-Falklands War musicians mentioned, one being Hank Williams Jr., who Agent Curtita recalls listening to with her father on a dubbed cassette, and another is, quote, some girl named Madonna Louise Ciccone, end quote, <laughs> who sang From Fresno to Cape Cod, One Nation Under God. I loved this Easter egg pause. And I have to assume, I have to assume you use Madonna because her name is recognizable and because you're a Madonna fan. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, it's like, can you exist in the world and not be a Madonna fan? I don't know. Um, well, and also just, I loved the idea of thinking about, like, like who, like, how, how, the, how the war would have shaped, like, who got big right sure yeah <laughs> you know and and um and i just i also like um that that there's also there's another one there's like i i okay now i'm not sure whether this actually made it into the final manuscript but i think it did there's like a passing mention to an argentine singer who like overdosed on magenta in the 90s in the in the book um and that's actually that's charlie garcia who's one of the most famous rock stars in argentina oh. um so <laughs> there's sort of like yeah there's several of them scattered in there where it's like how how would history have been different not just geopolitically but in terms of like what earworms we would wake up with in the middle of the night that wouldn't let us go back to sleep. Sure. Popular culture. That's, it's so mm -hmm. important. That's so great. Were there any other artists that, and I, I, I hadn't written this question down, but I'm just thinking about it now that you'd considered instead of Madonna, or was it always going to be, I got to get Madonna in there some way. Uh, no, I mean, I had thought about like, I mean, obviously like, the question of Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, but then, like, Bootsy Poots is sort of a fictionalized Janet Jackson. Okay. In some way. So <laughs> so that ended up being the direction that I went with with that one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it was sort of look, looking for a way to give the reader, like, a little bit of, like, that Easter egg joy and also, like, the jarring thought of, like, oh, what if that hadn't happened, you know? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I love that. Oftentimes, detectives in fiction will have a, a unique garment or accoutrement they become as associated with. Sherlock Holmes, for instance, is always associated with his deerstalker cap. Uh, your agent, Kay Curtita, wears uh, a fanny pack. I, I, I had two questions about this pause. Uh, will there be another book featuring Agent Curtita? And two, will she still be wearing her fanny pack? <laughs> Well, I mean, I hope there will be another book featuring Agent Curtita, but I have to, you know, sell it to my publisher. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not working on it right now. But yes, if she comes back, she will always have the fanny pack. I love um, it. I love it. <laughs> my editor was sort of like, "Are you, are you sure she needs a fanny pack? It's kind of dorky." And I was like, "No, she must have her fanny pack." <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's her deerstalker cap. Yeah, exactly. Paz, Paz Pardo, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been so, so much fun and so special. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm really glad. I'm really glad that you 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 put that picture of the gumballs in the hot. I dog know, right? Who would have thought? It was it was so <laughs> coincidental because it was exactly what I described. I I'd seen maybe I guess what it was a week prior that um, Anthony Jesselneck put up his best favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd seen it, and I I said, well, you know, Jesselneck has some good taste because I, I was familiar <laughs> with other authors that he'd liked in the past. I said, I'm going to look at these authors and and check them out. 
and at the library, I did see your book, and I made a note of it. And uh, then the next thing I know, Paz Pardo is commenting on a photo I just posted, and I said, I know that writer, and I know her book, and she's on my list. Yeah, so so great. What a great, great coincidence. Very, very cool. Yes. Paz Pardo's yes. novel is The Shamshine Blind. If you love speculative fiction... If you love detective stories, if you love hard-boiled crime novels, you are going to love this book. Do yourself a favor and check it out. I'm going to include links to Paws and uh, The Shamshine Blind in the description of this episode. And at this point, I'm going to hand things off to our friend Rachel from Des Moines, and she is going to give you the chart chat. So without any further ado, take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week. I got some nice comments. I mean, ice comments from Jill, Sherry, Tavy, Jeffrey, and Bob. A while ago, Andy had mentioned liking the band Imperial Teen, who I only know from their appearances on the soundtrack to the 1999 teen film Jawbreaker. So I decided if I could make it to 99 installments of Rachel's Chart Chat, I would do a feature on the music from Jawbreaker like I did for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure back in segment number 69. I bought the Jawbreaker soundtrack CD near the time of its release in Feb of 99, but I didn't see it until it appeared on video, probably VHS, maybe DVD. I had seen an article in Rolling Stone about different soundtrack albums for recent movies. One of the others was Rushmore. I was intrigued by their description enough to pick it up in between snagging all of the Yes and Rush back catalog albums on CD. So the movie Jawbreaker is about two popular teen girls that accidentally kill one of their friends in a prank gone wrong and a very unpopular girl overhears them and they give her a makeover and make her really cool like them and it's just kind of how can this all last before someone cracks. And the main characters are Courtney, which is Rose McGowan, the kind of the leader, Fern slash Violet played by Judy Greer. Julie Benz plays Courtney's second-in-command, Marcy, and Rebecca Gayhart is the other main character who kind of goes from being a part of their clique to being out of it, Julie. We start off with I See by Letters to Cleo in a scene where the girls are driving to the restaurant with their friend in the trunk. This appears on the album. Letters to Cleo is a group from Boston uh, founded by Kay Henley and Greg McKenna. They are known for their song Here and Now from 1994. That hit number 56 on the pop charts, and the album Aurora Gory Alice hit number 123 on the 200. Um, They had one other hot 100 appearance, Awake, which made number 88. They covered the Cars Dangerous Type for the Craft soundtrack, and they had two covers on 10 Things I Hate About You, I Want You to Want Me, and Cruel to Be Kind. That was another film from 99, another part of this teen movie explosion. On Parks and Rec, the character of Ben Wyatt wore letters to Cleo T, and then the band appears as themselves in season six, and they are reunited as of 2016. The next song we hear is Volcano Girls by Veruca Salt. This appears in the opening credits with shots of how jawbreakers are made. This is not off the CD. This was the lead single off of their second album, uh, 1997's A Arms to Hold You. The Beatle nerds will enjoy that one. It went top 10 on three different rock um, alternative charts, but none of the Veruca Salt singles ever hit the Hot 100, which is a bummer. Uh, But four of their five albums uh, charted on the 200 albums chart. Jawbreaker soundtrack, as far as I can tell, it did not hit that albums chart. When I was looking up the teen slash high school movies of 99 i counted up 21 and 10 of those that i identified did have their soundtrack albums appear on the charts on the album chart that is to say the one that did the best was the wood which hit number 16 followed by varsity blues which made number 19 
Up next is You Who by Imperial Teen. This appears when Courtney, Marcy, and Julie are walking down the hallway. This is probably the most iconic image of the movie. It's actually done three times with three different character combinations and twice set to this song. Not Another Teen Movie even parodied the scene with using You Who as well. Uh, Imperial Teen was a pop group from San Francisco. They released their debut album in 1996 and they had six albums total between 96 and 2019. Yoo-Hoo was released as a single in 98. It was off of their second album, What Is Not To Love, but it didn't chart. Uh, and they also had a movie tie-in video starring Rose McGowan. And they also appear on the Wig in a Box, the Hedwig tribute album. Up next in the film, not on this album, is Good Times Roll by The Cars. Courtney, Marcy, and Julie bring their deceased friend Liz home. And this was the third single off of The Cars' 1978 debut. It hit number 41 on the pop chart. I learned that any all the Cars singles that charted in France hit somewhere in the top 10, which is pretty cool. Up next, this is on the soundtrack album, uh, Beat You Up by the Pristines. And that's a, uh, in a scene where a boy, high school boy, Zach, offers Julia a ride home. Uh, the Pristines were a group from New York City with three women and one man. They put out some singles in the late 90s and they had a full-length album, Scandal, Controversy, and Romance in 1998. I read an article on pleasekillme.com that sh- talked about how Joey Ramone was a big fan and put them on a lot of shows that he produced and even they played at his birthday bash. Recently, the Girlsville label has been releasing some music from the Christines on Bandcamp. You can find uh, demos and rarities and their uh, second album that was not ever released. Up next is also on the soundtrack album, Bad Word for a Good Thing by the Frigs. This is a scene where uh, Zach drops Julie home. Uh, the Frigs were a garage rock, 60s rock-influenced punk band from Camden, New Jersey, founded by guitarist Palmyra Delran. Bad Word uh, was originally a single in 93 on Telstar Records, and it later appeared on their album Rock Candy from 97, and it was used in an ad for the Chevy Trailblazer in 04-05, carefully edited to not have the chorus nor the phrase Lover's Lane. Uh, the Frigs also had a song off of their 1991 album called Shake, used in the movie Superbad, and they reunited for a few performances in 2008. Up next, a couple songs that are not on the CD. A song called Where Are We by Jack Drag, in a scene where Julie looks at photographs and calls Fern slash Violet. The film's credits have this one down to John Dragonette, but it's easy to see how that Jack Drag could be a stage name for such a person. Uh, This is a low-key song. I don't think it would have fit on the album, but it's good background music for that scene. Up next is the song Lollipop Lips by Connie Francis, and this is a scene where uh, the Courtney and Dane popsicle BJ scene. Uh, This song is from pop singer born Conchetta Rosa Maria Francanero, and it underscores one of the more notorious scenes in the film, where Courtney gets her boyfriend to demonstrate on a popsicle how he'd like to receive pleasure. This use of her song in a sexual scene along with another one of her songs in a very uh, gay-oriented film led Connie Francis to sue Universal Music Corp for licensing her songs in movies that she did not want them to appear in. It seems like she sued that label as well as the producers of Jawbreaker, but I couldn't find a lot about what happened to the suit. And for whatever reason, only the Japanese version of Lollipop Lips is available on Spotify. Connie Francis was known for recording her hits in other languages for her international fans. This one barely counts, but I did want to mention it. There's a scene where Marcy's having dinner with her dad, who is played by Jeff Conaway, and he's reminiscing about when she used to like Tiffany, and he starts singing, I think we're alone now. And it's actually called out in the, I guess he sings enough, but they have to mention it in the credits. 
this gives me an opportunity to mention some of the cameos or stunt casting in this film. Jeff Conaway, um, of course, from Grease. Uh, he plays Marcy's dad, Mr. Fox. And Grease, as well as the movie Carrie, are mentioned in dialogue in the film. Uh, PJ Souls, uh, known for Rock and Roll High School, plays Liz's mom. And her dad is played by William Catt, known for Greatest American Hero. That's not really a teen show, but I guess he was a high school teacher in the show. Um, and then Pam Greer, in her first post-Jackie Brown film, plays Detective Vera Cruz, who inv- investigates the death of Liz. I didn't for sure know her to be associated with teen movies, but I saw that she played a teacher in the sci-fi thriller Class of 1999. And so this is like kind of just a funny parallel. This is also about the Class of 99 and the bad stuff they're getting up to. And of course, Marilyn Manson is also in the film. He was dating Rose McGowan at the time. And that was possibly sort of a draw that he was in this. Uh, but I suppose the less said about him, the better. Up next is a really beautiful song called Flow by the group Transistor. Uh, it plays while Julie walks by the pool and she imagines that Liz is still alive. Taking a break from the punk slash rock, we have a lovely ballad with a little fuzz called Flow. The group Transistor was composed of Eric Presley, Gary Clark, No Jr., and singer Keely Hawks. They formed in 1995 in L.A. and released one album, self-titled, in 1997. They had two singles that charted in the U.K., which is the home country of two of the three band members. And this fits in very well with the scene, and I'm really glad they put it on the CD, despite having such a different mood or tone from other songs. And uh, Transistor also had a song on the Never Been Kissed soundtrack, another 1999 high school movie. Up next is a song called No Hitch by Emily Grogan. This has a very distinctive guitar riff. It's not on the soundtrack, but it does appear on a compilation called Girls, 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 Boston's Finest Female-Fronted Bands. And Emily herself left a comment on a YouTube upload of the song, explaining like the background behind it and how she came to record it. Uh, this song, I think, seems like it was very memorable for fans of Jawbreaker, because a lot of comments and things are like, people have been searching for this for ages. And I think this one should have been on the CD. I think it's a very interesting song. Next, we have The Frigs are back again, and they're covering Heartbreaker in a scene where some cheerleaders, including Tatiana Ali from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Lisa Robin Kelly from That 70s Show, talk to Fern slash Violet, now that she's popular. Uh, The Frigs, this is sadly not on the soundtrack CD nor on other Frigs albums on Spotify. The original, I learned, was done by English singer Jenny Darren, Uh, but Pat Benatar changed a few lyrics for her 1979 debut album, In the Heat of the Night. And that was her first charting single in the U.S. It was a number 23 pop hit. This is the first half, and we'll get to the rest of it next week. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff. I've still never seen the movie Jawbreaker, but I do love Imperial Teen. And that song, boy, I had no idea that soundtrack was so eclectic. Very, very cool. Can't wait for the, the next part. This has been episode 316 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Paz Pardo. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.